0: Today's scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by faith and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works, of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord, thanks Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Barb, you may be seated. Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and as always, we are so delighted to have you with us here today. Turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Well, some time ago, I was out with a friend for dinner. We had made our way into the restaurant, and as we were making our way back to our table, I had spotted an old neighbor of ours, of Jessica's and mine, from when we lived in Brookfield probably about 10, 12 years ago. And so I saw him and I waved to him and I walked over to him. I was excited to see him. We had gotten to know he and his wife just a little bit while we lived uh, in this apartment and, and had always just really enjoyed their company. And so I saw him and I said, hey Kevin, it's so good to see you. How's, how's your wife doing? I heard you guys had a kid, how have things been? And, and so we began to talk and have all these polite conversations, had a, had a really good exchange. I was just so glad to see him. Made our way back to the table. And later that day, I had a chance to talk to Jessica and I said, hey, I ran out, uh, when I was at dinner tonight, I ran into to kevin um, from brookfield and she goes who are you talking about i said well our old neighbor kevin and she goes i still don't know who you're talking about i said well he lived next door to us i began to describe him and his wife and what had been going on and she said oh you mean john (laughs) now i was raised in the kind of home where it was polite to use people's names in conversations so not only did i call john kevin once i probably called him that about four different times. And I did so in front of his colleagues who presumably actually knew his name, right? But for whatever reason, probably just out of graciousness to me, he didn't correct me. And listen, there wouldn't have been anything wrong if he did correct me. We've probably all been in that situation at one point or another. Somebody calls us the wrong name and we eventually have to correct them and all of those sorts of things. But for a whole lot of people, they have to encounter something pretty serious in their life to actually be willing to even consider publicly correcting someone else. And in the text that we come across this morning, we we discover what that line was for the Apostle Paul. Because to this point in this book, Paul has been laying out his own personal experience with Christ and with the church. And in essence, he has been calling forward different characters who can attest to the truth, the veracity of his claims around the gospel, the the truth of what it is that he'd been declaring. He's calling witnesses who can affirm what it is that he had taught the Galatian church. And he began by pointing to the fact that he had been made an apostle by Christ himself. He says, no, no man made me an apostle. No, no committee, no group of officiants declared me to be an apostle. Christ himself, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to me on the road to Damascus, called me to himself, called me to be a minister of the gospel, and made me an apostle of his own name. And then he goes on from there and he points to the fact that not only was he called and placed by the resurrected Christ, but that his calling was affirmed by the other apostles, by those who had walked with Jesus, by Peter and James and John. And now, as if to cement his bona fides even further, he points to a face-off that he had had with Peter. Peter. Peter, the rock of the Christian church, Peter, who outside of Christ and possibly Paul himself, is the most influential character in all of the New Testament. Now aside from Paul's own personality, because we discovered last week in verse six that Paul was less than impressed by the titles of other people, or the roles that they had, or the level of influence that they possessed. Aside from the personality of Paul, what gives Paul the boldness to confront Peter in this way in the text today? Well, what gave him the boldness is that the gospel that, Peter, that Paul loved, rather, had been undermined by Peter's behavior. And just as we learned last week that we ought never undermine the gospel by giving into the legalistic demands of others or enforcing legalistic demands that the Bible does not require onto someone else, we learned this week that when brothers or sisters engage in that legalistic behavior, and again, let's define what we mean by legalism. In this case, what we mean by legalism is anything that adds to the completed work of Christ as being necessary for your salvation. Any call to obedience, any personal standard or conviction, any, any act or function or right that you might have to walk through in order to earn God's affection, that is a legalistic standard. It's a standard. It's something outside of Scripture, something the Bible does not command or ordain, and something that the Bible, therefore, does not, uh, does not encourage. And what we're learning is that when a brother or sister engages in that sort of behavior, where they add something to the gospel of Jesus Christ... Christian love then drives us to gracious correction. Christian love drives us to gracious correction. And the idea of love and correction in our day and age in particular are two ideas that typically don't go together. We tend to think in our modern context or really our postmodern context, we tend to think of the idea of love as affirmation That to love somebody is simply to affirm what they believe about themselves. It's to reinforce their priors. It's to encourage them in the path that they are already on. That is the way that our society, by and large, defines what love is. But that is not the idea of Christian love. The idea of Christian love is that love ultimately wills the good of the other, to quote one theologian that it wills the good of the other, meaning I care so much about you, I care so much about you believing the right thing and living the right way and being honest and truthful in your understanding of who you are in the sight of God, that even if it means confrontation, I am willing to love you so much that I will confront. Now what exactly is happening that necessitated this response from Paul? We find the answer in verse 11 but when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before, certain men, for before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, in order to understand this, we have to understand some more background here. Peter has been ministering throughout this region of the world. And in particular, Peter finds himself ministering in a cosmopolitan city called Antioch. According to biblical scholars, Antioch at this point in time is a city of about a half million residents. And when you think about ancient cultures and ancient civilizations, 2,000 years removed from where we are now, it's hard to imagine a city of a half million people that's roughly the size of the city of Milwaukee, that many inhabitants in this particular culture. And what's unique about it, at least in terms of Peter's experience, is that about 10% of its population is Jewish. Remember, Peter is coming from Jerusalem. His experience in ministry has been almost exclusively to this point with Jews, and he now finds himself ministering in this multicultural context, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who were not of the Jewish faith or tradition, and he's declaring to them this Christianity, this fledgling faith. It's so fledgling that it doesn't even have a name yet. The faith that these people followed was simply called the way. And to be a follower of Jesus Christ was to be called a follower of the way. And as more and more people throughout this region became uh, became aware of the followers of the way and heard the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, they, they were trying to develop a way to describe this faith to others that were around them. They knew that the way had some sort of common ancestry with Judaism. They knew that it shared many of the tenets of the Old Testament, but they also knew that it was very clearly different than Judaism. The followers of the way were not marked primarily by their ethnicity, the way that Judaism was. They weren't marked primarily by their dress or by their diet or by the temples that they worshipped in, the way that other religious groups were. In fact, the only thing that the people of Antioch could use to describe the faith of the followers of the way was that they were always talking about this Savior, Jesus Christ. And so they began to call them little Christ's. Christians. The term Christian that we still hold today was coined in the city of Antioch when people were were seeing these followers of Jesus Christ and trying to figure out what to call them. And to put it in an even more stark contrast, Dick Lucas, a great old Anglican pastor, said that the best way to understand this era is to imagine a conversation between a pagan resident and his Christian neighbor. And so the pagan resident comes to his Christian neighbor and says, oh, you have a new religion. That's fascinating, where where is your temple? And the Christian responds, well, we have no temple, but God actually dwells in us. And the pagan says, well, what is it that you sacrifice? And the Christian responds, well, Jesus was our sacrifice, but he was once for all. Who then is your priest? Well, Jesus, our sacrifice is also our priest, but the work that he does is already completed. Well, I'll have to add this to my rotation of worship, says the pagan neighbor. Oh, no, says the Christian. There is no other name or entity by which God can be known. And in the words of one author, the pagan knew what we often forget, that Christianity was not a new religion. It was the anti-religion. So Peter is in this environment where he's no longer surrounded by his ethnic tribe. He is a Jewish Christian in the middle of a pagan city seeing Gentile converts meet a glorious Christ. And so he brings the same model that he'd used in the book of Acts chapter 2. They began to meet together in their homes. They began to break bread and share meals together. They began to talk about the gospel and study scripture together. And Jew and Gentile are sitting side by side at the table. And I say this not to paint this as some sort of Xanadu in this point of time, but to say that the thing that united these disparate peoples was the gospel that they mutually held. And this stood in stark contrast to the Jewish experience. Philip Ryken in his commentary on Galatians quotes one Hebrew scholar as saying, and I want you to listen closely, as saying, in Judaism, table fellowship, in other words, breaking of bread, sitting at a meal with others, table fellowship means fellowship with and before God for the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. Reichen continues, meal times were sacred to the Jews. Remember the way people reacted when Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors? And Riken in his commentary brings up a fascinating point, which is that when you see Jesus' interactions with sinners and tax collectors and people of ill repute around town, when you see him sitting down at a meal with them and sharing a meal, do you remember the response of the Pharisees to Jesus? Their response was to refer to him as a drunk and a glutton and a friend of sinners. And their accusation was, Jesus, by sitting down with these sinners, by these wicked people, by with tax collectors and, and, and those whose reputations are known in the community as being less than stellar, you are extending fellowship before God with them. What you're saying, Jesus, by sitting and eating with them is that God can somehow accept these people. And so the Jews had a very particular way of approaching meals, which is that they only broke bread with people who they knew to be ceremonially clean, with people who held the same exact faith and believed the same way that they did and had gone through all of the same rites that they had gone through. And so in sharing a meal with these Gentile Christians, Peter was actually affirming their standing before God. He was declaring that the Jews and the Gentiles were on level ground at the foot of the cross. He was affirming them as brothers and sisters, that they were deserving of the same blessings as Jewish Christians. But then something happens. A group of Jewish Christians who had been in Jerusalem come to Antioch, and this group of Judaizers held the opinion that these uncircumcised Gentiles were second-class Christians if they were Christians at all. And when Peter met these Judaizers, he immediately felt the peer pressure to conform to their expectations, to apply their standards and their laws. And so suddenly, when the church gathered, Peter would no longer sit with the Gentile Christians. Just like middle school, he'd take his tray and he'd walk right past his old Gentile friends to make his way to the cool table. Now the temptation for us in a modern context might be to look at Peter's behavior here and say, well, listen, he's just spending time with the people who are most like him, the people with whom he shares a common culture. Certainly that's understandable, but understand the problem here is not one of kinship. The Bible is not condemning the idea that particular people who share a common culture might have more things in common. That's not, not the accusation at all. The problem here is that Peter was communicating a deficient gospel. He was communicating a gospel that had been made available to the Jews, but in which Gentiles would need to adopt the trappings of Judaism in order to obtain it. In other words, they were promoting a Jesus-plus gospel. And you can see why Paul is so concerned with this based on everything that he said to this point in the book of Galatians. He's not only concerned for what this communicated about the gospel, but he's also concerned about what it led other Christians to do. Look what he says in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews, according to Paul, acted hypocritically along with Peter so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul says, it's bad enough, Peter, that you're communicating a deluded gospel to our Gentile brothers and sisters, but in addition, the other Jewish Christians are following your lead. And Paul's disappointment hit its peak when he observes that even his old friend and traveling companion, Barnabas, was led astray by Peter's actions. This is essentially Paul's way of saying, Barnabas, you know better. You've seen the gospel and its effect on our Gentile brothers and sisters, You've proclaimed this gospel to Gentiles. You've sat and eaten with Gentile brothers and sisters and now you're gonna follow Peter's poor example? See, the truth is we have all, each one of us, regardless of your age or your station of life or your background or your experience, you are where you are in your family, in your schools, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, you have all been uniquely placed to influence others in your life. There are people in your life who you have a unique ability to affect and interact with and challenge and press and love and encourage. People for whom you can set an example of what it is to be a believer. There are people in your life where you have influence and sway in their life like no one else has. And we typically don't think of our experiences like that. I mean, maybe if you're a parent, you can kind of see that, right? Because you see your children every day and you hear your children repeat things that come out of your mouth, whether you want them to or not. They follow your example and they learn from you and and all of those kinds of things. But do you understand that no matter where God has placed you, there are people watching you? There are people with whom you have influence, people for whom you are setting an example. Your words and your actions are always teaching, always. And the question is, are your words and your actions teaching the same thing? Is the gospel that you proclaim being borne out in your behavior? And the next verse contains the central focus of Paul's concern. Look what it says, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Paul here is not claiming that Peter didn't personally believe the gospel. Paul knew that Peter, Peter believed and loved the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nor did he claim that Peter wasn't teaching the gospel. He knew what Peter was teaching. We have record of what it was that Peter was teaching. Peter's teaching was orthodox. It was true. It was faithful. It was, it was gospel. No, he's claiming that Peter's behavior was not reflecting the truth of the gospel. Namely, that it is accessible to everyone. Paul is saying to Peter, in other words, Peter, you're claiming for yourself all the freedoms of the gospel, and rightly so. You're enjoying the fact that you're no longer bound by the dietary restrictions of Judaism. You're enjoying the fact that you no longer have to observe all the rituals of Judaism. You're living, Peter, in a Gentile culture, and you're enjoying the gifts of Gentile culture. But when you refuse to eat with the Gentiles within the gathering of the church or within gatherings of the church because they're uncircumcised, you are are implicitly demanding that they be bound by the law that you've been freed from. And in our lives, we are tempted by exactly the same thing as Peter. We all have unique temptations that are born of the very same seed of Peter's. See, all of us, regardless of where you find yourself in this room, and frankly, regardless of whether or not you consider yourself a Christian, if you're here and you're within the sound of my voice, you have a binding law of your own design written on your heart. Even if you don't claim faith in Jesus Christ, you have an internal code. You have a set of expectations. You have a standard of behavior by which you judge the worthiness of other people. Think in your own life about the people that you want to avoid. Maybe even the Christians that you want to avoid. Maybe it's a person with whom you worship on Sundays but wouldn't be caught dead going to a meal with. Maybe it's the person that you see in the grocery store where you duck down the aisle to avoid their gaze. Maybe it's the person that you'll converse politely with, but you'll trash either verbally or in your mind as you walk away. Well, why do you do that? What causes that? What stirs that up within your heart? Well, it's because you have a code. You have an expectation, you have a standard that that person has not been able to meet. But what Paul reveals in this passage is that we are all hypocrites at our core, just like Peter. So the old theologian Francis Schaeffer said it this way. He said, imagine if you constantly had a tape recorder with you that only began recording when you said the words, you ought, in other words, when you in the course of your life began to give instructions to other people or declare in some sort of verbal fashion how people ought to live their lives, if a recorder was to kick in right when you said those words and you were held to the standard of your own words, how would you fare? If God were to take that recorder and judge you only by the standard that you yourself laid down, you would not pass the test. So it's funny to me that one of the accusations that I hear from from many of those outside of the church is that all Christians are judgmental hypocrites. And faithful Christians, by and large, upon hearing that accusation, bristle because we don't like to be called hypocrites, but of course the non-believer is telling the truth when they observe Christian hypocrisy and judgmentalism. But the difference then is not whether the Christian is a hypocrite while the non-believer is consistent. No, the revelation of Paul is that all people are hypocrites, but Christians are likewise recipients of the glorious grace of God that covers our hypocrisy. And what Paul is telling Peter, and by extension us here, is that the doctrine of grace that we claim and that we teach must also be reflected in our interactions with others. See, the point of this text, as well as the text that we covered last week, is that all of us, listen to this if you hear nothing else, all of us are far too concerned with the goings-on of other people. We are far too concerned with whether or not other people measure up to our expectations. Whether or not we root those expectations in scripture or whether we root them in our own standards, we would be far better off if we did not concern ourselves with the failings of others and instead worked to better see and understand our own deficiencies. And the question, at least that came to my mind as I thought about that this week, is, well, doesn't focusing on our own sin just lead us to hopelessness and depression? And Paul anticipates that question, and he provides us with a glorious answer in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So here's what Paul is saying. Here's what Paul is saying to Peter and the Jewish Christians and to us today. Paul is saying, look, we as Jewish, as Jewish people grew up knowing the spiritual heritage that belonged to us. We were born into the nation that God had set apart as his own. We weren't like these Gentile sinners. But look, we were no more saved by our ethnicity and our heritage than by anything else we could do. In fact, if our salvation was up to us, says Paul, we never would have been able to attain it. But, says Paul, we believe in Jesus so that we could be justified through faith in him. What Paul is saying is this. You first need to understand and see the depth of your own sin. You need to see the extent of your own failures. You need to recognize your own inability to measure up even to your own standards, let alone the perfect standard of the Bible. And to quote one pastor, if the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. If the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. And this really connects to something we talked about several weeks back when when we talked about the fact that Paul, exposed to the gospel of grace in his life, began to grow and grow and grow in his understanding of his own depravity to the point where he said, there was grace that was available, made, made available and given to me abundantly given to me, the chief of sinners. Now, the question that comes to mind is this, was Paul really the chief of sinners? In the history of humanity, are you telling me there's no one that sinned more or worse than Paul? Well, I think that's probably not the case. But what Paul is giving us an insight into is that his recognition of his own depravity and his own failings and his own sin ran so deep. The gospel had so revealed the sin in his life that he couldn't find someone who was a worse sinner than him, because he knew his own his own hypocrisy and he knew his own preoccupations and he knew his own shortcomings and failures and temptations and sins. That's exactly what Paul is expressing. That same pastor continued by saying this, the truth is we are worse than we imagine. And listen, the more you push back on that, the more you push back on experiencing the freedom and beauty of God's grace. We are worse than we imagine. And when we diminish our sin by either ignoring it and pretending it's not sin or justifying it and rationalizing it, or hiding it, we only do ourselves a disservice because it's in the moment when you see your sin most clearly that you are then put in a position to experience most most clearly the beauty and the freedom of God's grace. See, God didn't reveal your sin to you simply to leave you in a position of being crushed by your sin. He doesn't reveal sin just so that you can sit and wallow in your muck and your mess. He doesn't reveal sin just so that you can beat yourself up for your failures. He reveals your sin, your depravity, your wickedness, the darkness of your own heart so that the light of the gospel of grace can reveal it and clean it. And the results of that understanding is reconciliation with God and with other believers when you begin to see your own depravity and when you begin to experience come face to face with the goodness of God's grace in your life where you are able to say with all sincerity of heart, God, I don't know why you would extend grace to somebody like me, but I'm so thankful that you do. It is in that moment of humility and recognition where you are then able to have reconciliation with other believers, even those who annoy you, even those who you might not, left to your own devices, choose to be around, and even those who are different than you. So the question then is, how does that happen? How does the gospel allow you to break bread? In other words, to sit down, to fellowship, to spend time with, to love those you might be least likely to sit with? We find an example in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, where Paul says to the Ephesian church, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, and if you're within the sound of my voice, chances are you're a Gentile, that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember this, that at one time, you were separated from Christ." You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, that is Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, those are Jews, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That the reconciliation we experience with a holy and righteous and perfect and glorious and gracious God, that vertical reconciliation that we experience with God enables horizontal reconciliation with people. And the question that ought come to mind for us is this. If if a divide, a chasm existed that was so great between the Jews and the Gentiles that they hated one another, if a chasm existed that was so wide that we needed Jesus Christ himself to come and bridge it, what is it in our lives, or rather who is it in our lives that is so distant from us that we are unable to find reconciliation with? Who is it in your life whom you are so unable to extend the grace of your own fellowship to? Who is it in your life who you might be harboring resentment or anger or bitterness towards? Who is it that you avoid at all costs? And specifically here I'm talking about within the context of the church, not just this church, but the church broadly, brothers and sisters in Christ. What brothers and sisters in Christ might you have who you avoid or or hold resentment towards because of some way that they've treated you or some interaction you had that is somehow unable to be bridged by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because do you understand that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was great enough to bridge the chasm between you and a holy and righteous God? A chasm that was so wide that what you and I deserved was an eternal hell. And Jesus Christ bridged that gap to bring us into fellowship and reconciliation and relationship with the Father. And because of that, he now extends the ability to have reconciliation with brothers and sisters. When we regard resentment, when we hold hatred, when we view others, particularly those who are in Christ, as second-class citizens because of something about them we don't like, what we are in essence saying is, Jesus, I appreciate everything you've done, but it just wasn't quite enough. That's explicitly what the Judaizers were saying. Jesus, we're thankful for your sacrifice. We'll take it from here with our Old Testament law and our circumcisions and our dietary laws and our restrictions and all of these other things will make up for the deficit you left on the cross. And just as much as an affront to God as that statement is, it is the same thing when we view other Christians as lesser than. Because what we are saying is, Jesus, you haven't done quite enough. This person still has to do more. And we refuse in that moment to extend grace the way that grace has been extended to us. So my encouragement as you go throughout this week is to give thought and consideration to who it is in your life that you might be tempted to hold to an extra standard. Perhaps, like in the case of Peter, holding them to a standard that you actually don't hold yourself to but at the very least holding them to a standard that the Bible does not hold them to. And where you find that, root it up and confess it. And I'll just admit to you for the sake of my own confession that as I thought about this question in my heart, there were far too many answers to that question. Because our own depravity knows no bounds. Our hearts are wicked desperately evil. Who can know the depth of what we're capable of, says the scripture. But the one who knows the depth of our heart also made a way of salvation. He extended grace and gave his son for us. So with that grace being received, brothers and sisters, let's extend it to those around us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the message of Galatians chapter two, for the challenge that it is to my heart and presumably to many hearts in this room. God, I pray that you would reveal to us where we find the gospel to be deficient, not because the gospel is deficient, not because it's not enough, but because we have decided that it's not enough. We've decided the extent to which it's going to have an effect and the extent to which it's going to reach and the the extent of what it's going to require in our lives. And God, in doing that, would you lead us to the point of confession where we would would admit that to this point in our lives, we have not thought you were enough. That where our belief may be orthodox and our teaching may be orthodox, our life simply has not reflected the truth that we teach. God, would you help us realize that all of us, everyone in this room, regardless of station, of age, of experience, everyone in this room has people who are looking at them who are viewing them as a model of what it is, of how it is rather that they should live. So God, in doing that, help us to live in a way that reflects the gospel, not simply out of a means of setting a good example, but in in realizing the grace that has been extended to us, would we then extend that grace in the way that we live? God, we thank you that you convict and challenge and push and press, not because you hate us, but because you love us because you love us too much to let us sit in our sin. And God, I thank you that you invite us as well to keep our focus inward on our hearts, to not extend judgment, but to extend grace, and to be sincere and honest with what it is we find in ourselves and to, to reveal it to the light of the gospel so that it may be transformed. God, I pray that we would believe the truth of your word today, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.